After I've spoken, we'll be breaking bread together. What a wonderful thing for us to do at the beginning of this year. But let me also wish you a happy new year. Um, Whatever 2024 may bring, I can guarantee you this. This is the year of the favor of our Lord. Amen? Amen? Jesus came and declared that truth. This is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the, the year that the Lord is turned towards us with grace and mercy. He's working miracles. He's determined to have a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He hasn't yet returned. That work is still f- happening around the globe. And so today, God is here to meet you, to meet us with favor, not with judgment. That is huge. And uh, we are continuing back in the Gospel of Luke that we've been going through over recent months. So can I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 13, please, if you have a Bible with you. Luke chapter 13. One of the things that Jesus was masterful at doing was gathering a crowd. He would gather thousands as rumors and as people were gossiping about him in villages and towns, a performer of miracles, the crowd would gather. But just as masterful as he was at gathering a crowd, was he masterful at dispersing a crowd too? He had an incredible ability to say precisely what people needed to hear, but what they needed to hear was not often what they wanted to hear. And there was a famous occasion when this happened in John 6, recorded in John 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus spoke words which were actually so offensive to those that were listening in, that the vast crowd just dispersed and left. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said to them, are you going as well? And Peter so poignantly said, Lord, where would we go when... You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. And my big prayer for us as a church for this coming year, my big prayer for us, is that we as a church would see, hear, and follow Jesus in whatever he may say and wherever he may lead. Would you join me in this year, praying into that, that we would be a people led by Jesus, that we would be a people following Jesus. Are you willing to be led by Jesus? Are you wanting to follow him wherever he may lead? That's my prayer for us as a church. As we turn to this passage of scripture, let me just prepare you for what's coming. There are many words of Jesus that you could describe as words that bring comfort. Words of the warming. They warm us when you you hear him speak. Words like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest. That sounds wonderful. But there are also words of Jesus that, on the other hand, are confronting and warning in nature. Words that are like smelling salts. Suddenly, there's this shock of, did he really just say that? Hard words, challenging words. 
And because we so often refer to the former, when we encounter the latter, when we encounter Jesus warning and confronting us, we are wise to not run and leave him, but to take our time to listen and to explore, dig into what is this life-giving message that he wants us to hear because he's the giver of life and his words are truth and he wants to lead you and me into all truth. So let's just prepare ourselves for what Jesus has to say as we read together from Luke 13 verses 22 to 30. Luke 13 verses 22 to 30. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. When you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from the east and west, from north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. This is God's holy word to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no deceitful word that comes from your mouth, We thank you that the words of Jesus are words that lead to freedom and life. We thank you that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Father, we can't come to you unless it's through him. And we thank you that once we've come to you, we find what we've been made for, which is to know you, to know life with you, to know your love and your goodness. And Father, we pray as a church into this coming year that you really would lead us through your Son. We do really pray that your Spirit filling us will help us to see Jesus and glorify him in all things. But Lord, I do pray, please, today, would you help us hear these difficult words with faith. Lord, I pray, would you bring a warning to us today that we need to hear. But I pray... Beyond it, would you bring to us an encouragement that nothing and no one can thwart your purposes on this earth to save from north and south and east and west, that you are building your church and the gates of hell 
cannot and will not prevail against it. We believe these things and we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. In the end, which will be more populated, heaven or hell? There's a question just to think upon for a moment. In the end, which will be more populated? Where will there be more people? In heaven or in hell? You see, the, the question comes to Jesus in a way which is, you can imagine a pin drop after the question's asked, can't you? Are a few people going to be saved? Is that not a question that you'd want to ask Jesus? I would want to ask him that. Jesus, uh, just explain to me, in the end, will heaven be more populated or will hell be more populated? What's the answer, Jesus? It's the question which comes to him, and it's a question from which Jesus has something very important for us all to hear. But let's not miss what we're told right at the beginning of this passage. It says in verse 22, he went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way to Jerusalem. From chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, and he turned his face towards Jerusalem. We find over and over Luke telling us he's heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem. And this passage is framed again with that. He's going to Jerusalem. Okay, he's going to Jerusalem. Well, why is that so significant? Because Jerusalem is his destiny. Because he's going to achieve in Jerusalem his greatest work. He's going to Jerusalem. He's setting his face towards Jerusalem because he knows it was for what was going to take place in Jerusalem that he came. It was for what he was going to endure in Jerusalem, which was why he took on flesh in the first place, that Jesus is heading surely and step by step towards the cross where he would be crucified and suffer in our place that as it were, his path was getting narrower and narrower and narrower and to the point where in the suffocation and the agonies of his crucifixion, he is achieving what he was sent by the Father to accomplish, to defeat death and sin and Satan once and for all. And from that moment, a tsunami of mercy and grace has flooded over every generation such that the waves continue to wash over us today. Waves of the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love and the goodness of God such that we can stand here today and we can boldly say he does not treat us as our sins deserve. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us so that we are now recipients of the kindness and the mercy and the grace and the righteousness of God. How undeserving of it we are. 
He's heading towards Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, right, notice that. Someone asks, we don't know who this is. They have some understanding, it would seem, of God's mission or God's purposes. Will, will a few be saved? To be saved is to be rescued. To be saved is to be brought out of some dire situation. Someone's drowning. You come along, you lift them up, you save them, you rescue them. How many are going to be rescued? How many are going to be saved? Will it only be a few? And Jesus doesn't actually specifically answer the question you may have noticed. He doesn't turn around to give a quantitative answer because the question is asking for a quantitative answer. Like, what proportion roughly should we expect? He turns to them and he takes this question as an opportunity to speak words that the crowd before him and the crowd before me today and words which I really need to hear. And so implicitly what Jesus does in this passage is he, he, he turns the question on its head and as it were he says, stop asking about everybody else, ask, ask this question, will you be saved? Will you be saved? Will I be safe? Will I be there? And then he goes on to say some things which, frankly, are terrifying. He says there's going to come a moment where the door will be locked. There's a door which is wide open right now. It's wide open. But there's going to come a point where that door is locked and then he doesn't just stop there. He says, and there are going to be those who are going to be hammering on the door. Let me in. Jesus, let, let us in. And it brings back to our minds, if you know your Bible at all well, uh, the story of Noah and the ark, doesn't it? When Noah told that a flood was coming and everyone presumably mocking him, what is he doing? And then there came that moment where God closes the ark door and the floods come and judgment comes. It, it brings back to mind those scenes and Jesus is saying there's going to come a moment in the future where the door shuts and the door locks and the question for each of us is on what side of the door will we find ourselves? On what side of the door will you find yourself And they're pleading. We ate, uh, we ate with you, didn't we? We drank with you. We, we were, I was there on the hill when, when you fed us with the fish and, and the loaves. I was there. I heard your teaching. I heard you, Jesus. I heard you. I ate with you. I was in church and listened to sermons. I, I, I ate the, the bread and drank the wine. I, I was there. I was a, I was a churchgoer. I went to the conferences. 
I read lots of books. And possibly the, the most chilling words in the whole Bible. Go away from me, you evildoers. I don't know you. Aren't those the most terrifying words perhaps in the whole Bible? What words do we want to hear in that day? Ah, good and faithful servant. So you're either going to hear that. Flee, get away, I don't know you. So the question is, well, how do I know if I'm on the right side of the door? How do I know? And this is, this is what Jesus does here. He, he speaks to them and he says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. That word effort, the Greek word here, is the word from which we derive the English word agonize. So we can... We could translate this phrase, make, uh, we could say agonize to enter through the narrow door. Agonize. Now let me ask you a question. Does this present a problem at all for you, this concept and idea? Hang on, Tim. Second, it's by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we're saved. It's not by works. What is this? Jesus says in chapter 12 of of this gospel, so Luke chapter 12, this is what Jesus says. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. He's just said. So what, what does he mean by that? Well, it's interesting in this passage which we read in, in chapter 13, he then speaks about being in the kingdom. Do you see that? Are you in the kingdom? Who will be saved? Well, those who are in the kingdom. So that phrase, being in the kingdom, is equivalent to those who are saved. When Jesus is with Nicodemus in John 3, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to see the kingdom. So to see the kingdom and to be in the kingdom is the same idea as those who have been saved. So with that understanding, he says, the Father delights to give you the kingdom. Now that is a great message. He is being truthful in chapter 12. He's being truthful in chapter 13. So when we see what appears to be something of a contradiction in the scriptures, there's a fantastic opportunity to dig into what's being said there, to find what's the gold here, because I'm finding there's a conflict and there's a tension. So when you're reading the Bible and you're finding there's a tension here, you have to conclude either God changes his mind and there's mixed messages, or there's some work I need to do in order to understand what is it that's being communicated here. I want to bring assurance to each and every one of you here today that salvation, God's gift, God's rescue, is 100% fully, purely, and entirely his work, his initiative. He saves. Amen? 
So let's listen to what is said in Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Are there degrees of deadness? This person's a bit dead. This person's really dead. You're dead or you're alive. We were all dead. And a dead person can't raise themselves. I'm just fed up of being dead now. I think I might come alive. Verse 4 of chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ. Even though you were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. Hallelujah. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. There's going to come a day when he does return and what's on display for the whole world is his immeasurable grace and it's rich and it's abounding through kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith and it is not from yourselves. It is God's gift not from works, so that no one can boast. There is no boast on that day beside a boast in the work of Jesus Christ. That's the only boast. Why should I walk through the door? Because Jesus has made a way. Because Jesus has opened it. And because Jesus has said, come. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Do you see that? You're saved by grace, but you're saved for good works. You see it? You're saved by grace for good works. So if you're saying, do you know what? I've received the forgiveness of God. I know I'm loved by him. I know I'm not judged. Um, I'm not going to be judged on basis of my sin. I know that he has forgiven me fully and entirely and completely. If you're saying, yes, that's true for me, then you are being called to follow Jesus. And he's got good works prepared for you to do. No one else has ever walked this planet happier than Jesus Christ. No one has had such a satisfying existence than Jesus Christ. No one has suffered like Jesus Christ. And he calls us to follow him. Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. And what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? What will anyone give in exchange for his life? I think one of the greatest wounds, if you like, that the church has inflicted upon itself has been the message of to be a Christian is to get a free ticket, as it were, to heaven. Have you got your ticket? 
Can you pull your ticket out from your pocket? And one of the, one of the things that we, we, we often do is, am I a Christian? We go, yeah, because one day this happened to me. And we're drawing upon evidence that one day something happened. Whereas what Jesus is saying here is you, you agonize to enter through the narrow door. So it's not so much did something once happen to me, but am I presently living in the light of this gospel? Do I know him? John 17 verse 3, Jesus says this, Father, he said in his prayer, he said, this is eternal life, to know you, the one true God, and him who you have sent, Jesus Christ. So he declares over some, I never knew you. So the question for me and for you today is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Are his words sweet to your lips like honey? Are his words a lamp to your feet? a light to your path. When you look upon Jesus Christ, do you see the one who loved you to the cross? When you think upon the gospel, do you see there your life lived by grace, call it vicarious, he lived on our behalf, and through his life, my life is lived in righteousness because of an gift of God the apostle Paul said do you know whatever was to my gain I count it as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord and my Savior do you know him because if you know him you will willingly be led by him along a narrow path Matthew 7, Jesus in a similar passage says, wide and broad is the path that leads to destruction. Narrow, the path that leads to life. There are so many ideas out there, aren't there, for what life is all about. There are so many messages which we're being, especially this time of year, how to really make it count. Broad, and wide are they. The problem with Christianity is it's, it's quite narrow. Some might accuse Christianity of, of, of not being tolerant enough. Jesus, uh, Jesus makes it quite clear that it is narrow. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But all are invited to come. All are invited to come. Romans 8, verse 15 says this. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Listen to this. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Did you see that clause? If we suffer with him, that we might be glorified with him. This is the Apostle Paul. He's teaching consistently with what Jesus is teaching here. It's narrow. The old English translation of that word narrow was straight, but it was S-T-R-A-I-T. And actually what that word meant is it's claustrophobic. It's, it smothers. It's like it's, it's like I'm suffocating. It's so squashed. It's so narrow. It's straight. And sometimes you, 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 you hear God calling you and you know what obedience look, looks like and it's, it feels straight and difficult. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, was that not exactly what he was enduring and experiencing? And yet he said, not my will be done, but yours be done. But it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and scorned its shame. So that the door was very narrow, but as he comes through, the vista opens up to the brilliance of the glory of God. So that the promises of God, which are accomplished through the suffering of Jesus Christ, the staggering new birth and the new creation that he is achieving and forming, go beyond our ability to grasp or imagine. Let me go back to the question that we pondered a moment ago. Which will be more populated in the end? Heaven or hell? Which will be more populated? Jesus says at the end of this passage, he says this, they will come from the east and west, from the north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. I want you to listen to these words in Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. A vast number no one could count doesn't say that about hell, says that about heaven. And even today I was reading in my quiet time when God spoke to Abraham and he said to him, look into the the heavens and number the stars. Can you do that? Greater than these will your offspring be. I really reject any idea that seems to communicate somehow there's going to be this small kind of remnant that make their way into glory and there's going to be these, this vast crowd in, the, in hell. That goes against everything that I believe the Bible teaches. That he will have the supremacy. How does he have the supremacy if hell has the supremacy? 
No, I think it's quite clear that the gospel goes so much further than you and I could possibly imagine. That the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross is so spectacular and glorious that what will happen that great day when he returns is that we will turn around and we will look and we will say, this is Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Glorious. A bride for Jesus from every nation, tribe, and tongue. A number that no one can count. But the question Jesus asks each of us today is, will you be there? Will you be there? You see, the evidence that we will be there is not that one day I came forward or one day I put my hand up, but that I am persevering through the challenges and the trials of life. I'm walking with Jesus. I might be suffering right now. I might be losing out, as it were, in life right now. But I'm not going to reject my Lord and my Savior. I'm going to be led by him through this because I know that as he walks with me through this, glory awaits. And for, for many of you, I know you make big personal sacrifices motivated by love for others that you could hold on to the things that you have but you freely give of them because you know you're serving a king who gave everything for you. I know many of you are living like that. You're persevering through. And I also know that there are some here today and you haven't yet said yes to Jesus. I know there are some of you here today and and you're hearing these words and maybe you're feeling a conflict in your spirit. But there is an opportunity here for you today to say, Jesus, would you save me? Would you have mercy on me, a sinner? It's not about waiting until a point where you think you're good enough. It's about accepting that you never will be. You certainly aren't now. But you come before one who says, the door's open. Come, enter, receive my forgiveness, receive my mercy, receive my love. Come on board the ark of God's salvation because there will come a day when the door is locked. Jesus makes it so plainly clear. Don't deny yourself that opportunity today. You've been warned. You've been invited. The door's wide open. He is abounding in steadfast love, isn't he? And we break bread and we drink the wine to remember the narrow door. To remember what Jesus did to enable us to come through. We must continue to break bread and drink the wine. We must continue to confess our sins, to repent of them. There will come a day when you will not need to repent of sin anymore because it will be completely taken away from you. There will be a day when you will be made perfect. Our flesh made perfect. No more sin. Hallelujah. But until that day, we persevere with Christ 
We suffer with Christ. We agonize through the narrow door because we are being led by him. And he has a great purpose in our lives and in this church.